0: Good morning, it's Monday the 9th of October and this is Govindraj Raj Ethiraj, coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. The stock markets brace for Middle East tension impact second quarter results. Credit policy holds interest rates for now. What is the Reserve Bank of India's strategy with economist Brinda Jagitar? The Bihar caste Survey. What is the economic impact going to be with economic affairs writer Shankar Iyer? And the real World Cup numbers, what's different from before and how are we measuring better with Karan Thorani of Ilara Capital.
1: This is a core report with Govindraj Raj Aethiraj.
0: The markets brace for impact. Before we come to this week, how were overall markets last week and on Friday? Well, the Reserve Bank of India kept rates unchanged and we will come to that shortly. Last week overall was positive for the stock markets after drifting down for the previous two weeks. On Friday, the Sensex gained 364 points to end at 65,996, while the Nifty 50 closed at 19,654, higher by 108 points. But if you looked at the week as a whole, the Sensex gained 167 points and the Nifty 50 rose 15 points. Foreign portfolio investors are still selling in October, having sold stocks worth 8,000 crore rupees in the first week of October after selling around 14,700 crores in September. However, from March this year to August this year, foreign portfolio investors have invested around 174,000 crores. As we've been discussing, the dollar is very strong and US bond yields are at record highs, causing money to flow back to those assets. This week is results week. Yes, it's that time of the quarter again, which is the July to September quarter for the financial year 2324. The information technology or IT companies are usually the first to go and TCS will put out its results on October 11th, followed by HCL Tech Infosys on October 12th, even among others in coming days. Now, the general expectation is of a steady earnings growth and IT companies are not expected to deliver any positive surprises. Speaking of surprises, there aren't any in the IPO market either. After the initial rush, the pace of new offerings has slowed down this month. There will be only one IPO opening for subscription this week, while most companies that launched public issues towards the end of last month are set to list on the exchanges now. A company called Arvind and Company Shipping Agency from Jamnagar is the only IPO opening for subscription next week, that's October 12th, with an offer price of forty-five rupees per share, and that's in the SME segment. Arvindan Company has a fleet of marine vessels like cargo barges, flat-top barges, and ancillary equipment for the construction industry, illustrating a somewhat larger point that it's mostly traditional and manufacturing and services or logistics companies that are going public, at least predominantly in this round. Hamas attacks Israel. If you've been tracking the news, you know that Israel came under attack by Hamas militants at the Gaza Strip on Saturday. Several hundreds are believed to have died now on both sides in the ensuing fighting. Oil prices could, of course, be the first casualty of any tension in this region, but it appears from all reports at this point that there is no immediate threat to supplies and thus limited impact on prices. Again, that's at this point. Oil itself has been through quite a journey, hitting $94 a barrel on its way to projections of $100 a barrel, but now back to below $85 a barrel, all in a few weeks. The only cause of concern is that if Iran, which supports Hamas, gets pulled into the war with Israel, that could change a lot of things. Iran's shipments, according to Bloomberg, are at a five-year high, and this is obviously playing a role at stabilizing oil prices as they are. Meanwhile, Bloomberg also reported that major equities gauges in the region fell Sunday, led by a 7% drop in Israel's benchmark TA35 stock index, its biggest loss in more than three years. The Taraul Al share index in Riyadh fell 1.2%, while stocks in Qatar and Kuwait also weakened. Egypt's EGX30 gauge declined as much as 5.4%. All these markets were obviously open on Sunday. Back home, Air India on Sunday said it had cancelled flights to and from Tel Aviv till October 14th. It said it'll extend all possible support to passengers who've confirmed bookings on any flight during this period. Air India operates five weekly flights to Tel Aviv from New Delhi and these are direct flights. The Reserve Bank holds rates. What is the strategy? It was mostly expected, including by the core report, that interest rates would not be touched by the Reserve Bank of India in its monetary policy on Friday, October 6th. The Reserve Bank and the Monetary Policy Committee, that's the MPC, kept the policy repo rate unchanged at 6.5%, and the bank rate stands at 6.75%. Since interest rates began going up, the repo rate has been hiked by 250 basis points, and the last raise happened in February this year when rates were raised by 25 basis points to the now 6.5%. Now, when one thinks of interest rates, one usually thinks of home loans and other consumer loans. Now, the overall housing market, as we've been discussing here, including last week, continues to remain very strong, though premium housing is now doing better than affordable housing. Or put differently, a lot of people are getting pushed out of the real estate market at the affordable end of housing thanks to inflation and possibly incomes not rising, as we discussed with Night Frank economist Vivek Rathi last week. The Reserve Bank of India maintained its inflation and GDP forecast for this year at 5.4% and 6.5%. That's inflation at 5.4% and GDP growth forecast at 6.5%. So now to get a sense on what the Reserve Bank strategy was and how we should be viewing it as consumers and businesses, I reached out to Brinda Jagirdar, economist and former head of economic research at State Bank of India, and began by asking her what she was taking away from the Reserve Bank of India governor's statements
1: it was expected that there would be no major changes or announcements in the credit policy. But I think the governor this time, his commentary is very important. And I think his focus this time has been more on growth. Of course, he continues to be concerned about inflation because globally also inflation is high. In India, we don't know how the monsoons are going to play out. And already there is some news about the area under the curry crop being lower. So though the vegetable, tomato, potato prices have come off, pulses cereals etc still remain elevated so overall he's still concerned about inflation and he also says look i'm not going to be comfortable with under six percent i wanted to come to four percent but at the same time he's indicated that the growth is very important so he would not like to raise rates to control this inflation but i think he's going to do it through liquidity management that's why he announced the omos so coming back to growth I think the focus here would be because the whole world, the growth is falling all over. And you remember, IMF recently came out with this report when it said that even it downgraded global growth forecast from 3.5% to 3%. And almost all countries that cut the growth forecast except for India. But it raised it from 5.9% to 6.1% against RBI 6.5%. So it's very important to make sure that this growth remains on track. So I think here on, RBI's focus would be on how to make sure that we have sustained growth going forward.
0: And you touched upon liquidity and open market operations. Could you explain that for our listeners and conceptually what that means and how that will work in this specific context of managing inflation?
1: More liquidity means more demand and that would, of course, push up prices. So if you want to control inflation, one way, of course, is to raise rates, repo rates, interest rates. Another is to make sure that liquidity is adequate, it's not uh, excess. Now, remember, we are going to the election season. So, there would be you know more spend coming into the economy. Then, overall, of course, government spending in the second half is higher. So, that money too would already be there. Then the 2,000 rupee notes which have come back have also added to liquidity in the economy. So, this needs to be controlled because the whole idea is to... Unwind the excess liquidity that has got accumulated in the economy from the past actions. While that withdrawal of accommodation will continue, RBI will also keep an eye on making sure that there is excess money sloshing in the economy, which could really undo all the efforts on inflation control. So, and the Reserve Bank does that by buying back? Uh, yes. So, what happens is that it sell, when it sells bonds, it withdraws that much of liquidity from the economy. So, that's why he said very clearly, not just oh, he didn't stop at OMO, he said OMO sales. Right,
0: Brinda, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Govind.
0: The caste census and its economic impact. The Bihar government on Monday released data from a somewhat controversial caste-based survey that said that nearly 63% of the state's 131 million population belong to backward classes and nearly 85% belong to either a backward or an extremely backward class or a scheduled caste and tribe. Specifically, 36% of the state is from an extremely backward class, 27% from a backward class, about 20% from a scheduled caste and about 1.7% from a scheduled tribe. So the general category, including so-called upper castes, account for about 15% and Brahmins constitute only about 3.6% of Bihar's people. Now, to get a sense on what this means, but from an economic policy perspective or construct, and in the context of the fact that we are yet to have an overall census for the country, the last being 2011, I reached out to well-known economic affairs writer and columnist Shankar Rayer, And I began by asking him what the caste census was telling us and what we should be taking away from a larger economic perspective.
2: Well, in, the Bihar caste census is actually a Bihar caste survey because only the national government is supposed to do the census. But anyway, the caste survey is actually validates much of what was suspected earlier that the other backward classes constitute a larger portion of the population. Than as was estimated by the 1931 census, the 1931 census, if you remember, was the basis for the Mandal Commission report to establish which caste gets how much reservation in the overall scheme of things. It is now fueling of demand for a national level census. Political parties in the opposition see this as an opportunity. The interesting thing go with this. All the parties which are in the opposition have been in government at some point or the other. And over the last seven decades, every party has maintained that this census will only track the changes in population of the scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. That wall of ambiguity that appears in parliamentary answers regularly has been broken down. And what is the economic implication of this finding, Shankar? cast survey signals that there is a greater level of, I mean, it is a signal of a greater level of distress at the bottom of the pyramid, both the social and economic pyramid. India already runs large population-scale welfare programs. You have the rural employment program, Narega, which has roughly 26 crore or 260 million persons registered. And that's a large number of people looking for employment Door The National Food Security Act feeds over 810 million people. That's a large scheme. The Ayushman Bharat Health Scheme covers 500 million people. What this data tells you is that a large number of Indians are in some sort of distress or at least face will face distress if these welfare schemes curtailed or removed. Interestingly, the data that has flowed out, even before the data came out from the BRCAST survey, parties were already pushing for higher welfare. So you would see this reflected in the campaign slogans of direct cash transfers to women. State governments are already doing targeted programs through the NPCI system, like roughly state governments have about registered 7,000 courts make the direct benefit transfer. What this will do is, A, it will push for a greater devolution of what is collected in revenues towards welfare, it may affect, and that will definitely affect the investments that are being done in human or physical infrastructure by India which is necessary for growth.
0: Right. So you're also saying that therefore it's a straight correlation between those in the lower castes and their economic backwardness.
2: Even if we had not seen the details of the survey on which caste constitutes what percentage of population, anecdotally, intuitively, you knew that there is those who held no land or even those who had land were suffering. So, the basic story, if you look at the architecture of India's economy, is about 45% of the workforce is dependent on the rural economy and agriculture. And agriculture constitutes roughly 18% of the GDP. So, nearly half the population, when it is dependent on only one sixth of the national income, you know, a huge proportion of people are in distress. Now, what this sort of establishes is that probably most of those people are in the grouping of the other backward classes. Remember that even those who are landed, who are not defined as backward or are defined as landed dominant classes, have been asking for reservations like the Marathas, the Jats, and the Kapos in Andhra Pradesh. Right. And last question, Shankar. So this is
0: Bihar and a survey, as you said. Could there be similar findings if such surveys were done in some of the other
2: larger and populous states? Definitely signals the trend. I mean, you know, of trajectory of how the data might flow out. There might be resonance. It may not be replicated, but there is definitely resonance. And so there will be a push for a higher level of to lift the cap on reservations, which is currently under a Supreme Court order at 50 plus percent. And plus, you have the economically vehicle section reservation. So, this is going to be an interesting contest in the coming months.
0: Right, Shankar. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And the World Cup has kicked off. World Cup cricket has started off on the 5th of October with the first match having been played in Ahmedabad between England and New Zealand, which New Zealand won. Now the stadium looked a little empty or was too large to host such a match, the first of 48 by the way, and when I say such a match, I mean without a player from the subcontinent. Nevertheless, there are some other aspects of this World Cup that are different and will thus provide a strong consumption spike across sectors. For one, all these matches are being played in Indian standard time. India is hosting the World Cup after 12 years and for the first time is hosting all the matches solo. There is definitely a lot more number crunching going on in and around the World Cup's business impact. And there are some new elements like the presence of food aggregator platforms which obviously bring food to you quickly as you stare transfixed at the television screen, presumably. Or are stuck in a traffic jam en route to the venue. How much has changed since the last World Cup? And to what extent are the numbers potentially high because of the clash with the festival season which is also seeing its own bump up? And for those who really want to know, what kind of food and snacks would benefit more or what are the companies behind them? in case you're looking for new stocks to buy. I reached out to Karan Taurani, media analyst and senior VP at Mumbai-based Ilara Capital, and I began by asking him if we are really better measuring the spends and impact this time.
3: Now, if you look at the World Cup, this time around, two, three things are there, which has never happened before. One is that the World Cup is happening only in India. It is not being shared with other Asian nations. That's something which is happening for the first time. Secondly, I think the World Cup is clashing with festive season. And as you know, that during the festive season, the mood is quite upbeat as far as spending and consumption is concerned. Third thing, of course, again, which is new is that the World Cup is being offered free of cost. On digital, if you look at the World Cup as a property, it's always been behind the paywall. So I think these are three things, you know, which are like first timers. And that is why, you know, you're going to see a big uptick in terms of the overall broader consumption. Nonetheless, I think because it's in India, the time zones are quite favorable as well. So just to give you some broad perspective on numbers, I think last time around during the World Cup, total ad revenue generated was around 1,300 to 1,400 crores, which is TV and digital put together. And this time around, the numbers could move towards 2,300 to 2,500 crores. Last time around, the World Cup was behind the paywall, which is why the ad revenue numbers were subdued. But this time, because it is free, I think the numbers could move 80-90% higher on digital as compared to the last World Cup. This also factors in the uncertain environment because, uh, you know, many of these uh, new age companies or verticals have cut down spends. Gaming verticals have also cut down spends because of regulatory issues. But despite that, I think this 80% growth in digital ad revenue versus the earlier World Cup is a compelling number because of the time zone favorable, which is there. And also clearly, uh, you know, people are going to catch up because the content is available free of cost.
0: So if I can drill down on one aspect in this, so obviously one thing that's clearly changed since last time is let's say the overall consumption on digital, including mobile would have increased. Now, what does it mean in terms of gross? I mean, the entire revenue, including let's say what you may have lost because you've brought down the paywall and so on, or maybe and therefore gain from advertising. So what's the gross takeaway from or likely takeaway from all of this? So
3: I think if you look at the digital revenues that way, could have been much more higher as compared to right now because many verticals which are very heavy on the cricket side whether it is gaming it is e-commerce companies new age companies you know fintech they're all exploring this entire path to profitability so they've you know curtailed their ad spends and the environment is not that great as how it was you know about 12 to 15 months back when globally things were quite fine So if that wasn't to be the case, then, you know, because the World Cup is being offered free, the numbers would have been much more higher, they would have crossed 3000 crore kind of a number in terms of potential ad revenue, which will somewhere be towards 2300 crores to 2500 crores as per our estimate. And also what is happening is that the growth rate on TV is not that high. So if you look at digital, the numbers are, as I told you, somewhere higher close to 80%, you know, versus the last World Cup. But if you look at TV, I think the numbers are only about 20% higher versus last World Cup. Because TV, the number of households have come down in post-COVID era, people have moved to digital in large numbers. And because this time around the content is free, TV consumption will also stand to see some bit of a hit. Because these are matches typically which are 9 hours, right? I mean, people may not watch or rather be at home to watch the entire match for 9 hours. They might watch the first half of the match as per their convenience or on the go. And the second half on TV.
0: Is there any other benchmark, for example, IPL in terms of overall ad and uh, ticket sales revenue? Yeah, so I think if you look
3: at IPL, firstly, one can't compare IPL to World Cup. Because IPL, there is more interest amongst all the matches. Because all the matches have got a mix of Indian and global peers. But in the case of World Cup, the interest is, you know, higher for India-based matches. And generally, as per our math, historically, World Cup, in terms of number of India matches is in the range of 15 to 25% basis, you know, the qualification of India in that particular tournament in terms of how they progress. Now, in terms of consumption and in terms of advertisement pricing, India matches are priced much higher, significantly higher. Uh, It is somewhere close to, you know, four to five times higher pricing as compared to the average pricing of the tournament in terms of per 10 second slot or in terms of the CPMs on the digital front. And this is primarily because of the consumption numbers as well. So if you look at the concurrent viewers or the number of consumers online to watch the match, again, it's, you know, four to five times, even seven to eight times. at some of the times Like if you look at India-Pakistan match, it's significantly high. So I think it's all about consumption and number of viewers, which is phenomenally high. And that drives the ad revenue for India-based matches. But nonetheless, you know, for the uh, tournament as a whole, the numbers will not reach closer to IPN, as I said, because IPL, there is more interest for watching all the matches.
0: Right. And you're also saying that compared to last year, I mean, the last World Cup, the jump up is not so significant because of obviously all the potential advertisers staying away or not being able to participate.
3: I would not say not so significant. As I said, it's around 1300 crores number going to 2300 crores, which is a jump of somewhere close to about 60 to 70%. This is not bad at all, given the kind of environment we have. So I think... Some part of the negative impact of, you know, some of the advertisers cutting ad spends has been offset by the festive season, which I told you. The clash with festive is like a very big positive. So the numbers are not as bad as one would think, but they're not something very exciting or, you know, something very surprising as well on the positive side.
0: Right. And let's look at the non-ticket part and the non-viewing part. So there is a lot of ancillary consumption that's obviously happening through restaurants and delivery companies and so on so how is that spike looking to you and once again in contrast to what it could have been or what it was four years ago
3: so i think we've done our analysis here in terms of you know what typically happens during the world cup so firstly this is the first time that aggregators like zomato would be operating at a reasonable scale during the world cup because the last world cup which happened in 2019 zomato was phenomenally small as an aggregator so what we typically see is that during the month of world cup These aggregator or QSR companies see incremental sales of 10 to 15% in that particular month. Which means that the annual sales go up by 1.5% and the quarterly sales for that particular World Cup quarter moves up by somewhere close to 3 to 4%. And that's the broader correlation that we have drawn. Now, this time around, I think players like Zomato will be at the upper end over here in terms of the potential positive impact because clearly a lot of the food you know online delivery will happen a lot of, the lot of people who order food online you know watch matches in large groups and zomato will be a big beneficiary also another very important trend in terms of consumption that we see in the post covid era is that in terms of ordering of food pizza has always been the leader but in the post covid era you know people have moved to other categories also whether it is burgers fried chicken biryani and other things put together so i think this will primarily have a very big boost in terms of zomato's number of orders and Potentially, their growth could be, you know, 4 to 5% higher in that particular World Cup quarter. Whereas other food companies like Devyani, Sapphire, Westlake, which are in the fried chicken on the burger category, they would see numbers of close to 3 to 4% uh, higher in that particular quarter. But players like Jubilant, which is in the pizza category, they may not see the big delta of growth this time around because their moat was delivery, their main thing go-to for the customer or USP was delivery which will not be there anymore because of the aggregators scaling up so aggressively. So I think they'll be at the lower end in terms of potential positive impact.
0: Right. And last question, Karan. So we are obviously looking at all these numbers more closely this time. And that's good because everyone is trying to measure the experience economy, whether it's Taylor Swift or the World Cup. So what's your sense? I mean, are we seeing these numbers more closely because we've got around to doing it? Or are there genuinely some big changes over time in these categories particularly live entertainment and cricket and so on
3: no i think this is a genuine change and i think the number growth rates have been phenomenally high as compared to the earlier times this is timely because of digital so if you look at the overall revenues uh, that a world cup would generate is going to be phenomenally high versus 2019 because of digitally which means that digital advertising revenue will be higher which means that online food ordering will be higher, right? So, both these are the adoption of digital that we see in the post-COVID era. As you know that customers clearly moved away from traditional media, moved to digital in terms of, you know, not going to the store to get something or, you know, ordering food online or ordering grocery online. I think these digital trends have really picked up in the post-COVID era and which is why the consumption numbers are going to see a big boost in this World Cup because the first World Cup in the post-COVID era.
0: Okay, thank you so much for joining me, Karan. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Pleasure as always. And Indonesia's fire burn again. Indonesia's neighbours, including Singapore and Malaysia, have complained that smoke from the burning of forest fires is making the air unhealthy to them. Now, haze is a recurring problem in Southeast Asia and mostly originates from natural or man-made fires in Indonesia and Malaysia during the dry season. Many of these blazes result from illegal burning to clear farmland for cash crops such as palm oil, a practice that persists despite years of government efforts to stamp it out, Bloomberg is reporting. You of course would see the parallels between what you, particularly if you are a resident of Delhi, face in winter with the fires in neighbouring states. Now, the President of Indonesia, Jokowi, said, When there is fire, there will be smoke, and if there is wind, it can go anywhere. However, he said that he had ordered the military chief and the police to handle every hotspot, however small, immediately. Singapore's 24-hour PSI air pollution readings in the centre and east of the island rose above 100 on Saturday, a level described as unhealthy, according to the National Environment Agency's websites, though that had dropped to 96 by 2pm on Sunday. But more importantly, and this is something that we obviously relate to, there is the El Nino effect. What the El Nino effect means here is that rains are delayed. And now... Fires are often the worst at the height of the dry season in August and September, but in El Niño years, the delayed rains allow the burning to spread into October and beyond. So in many ways, or more than one, climate change or changes in weather patterns are obviously affecting all of us similarly. On that note, that's it from me for today. Have a great week ahead. Do log into www.thecore.in. Subscribe to our newsletter. Get alerts on our podcast, our newsletters, of course. Read our stories and have a great day. This was the Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.